never discounts a person due to the natural process of aging. And so neither should any of us. Now, because the Bible doesn't discount a person due to the natural process of aging, because of their advanced years, the modern cultural concept of retirement is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Retirement has been defined as this, the act of retiring, withdrawing, or leaving, or the state of being retired by someone else. And for some people, it's held out as the ideal within our culture. But as Christians, we are called to continue Christ's work in the world until our last breath. There is no chronological age at which we retire from our calling as Christians. There's no chronological age at which we are released from the responsibility to be a part of God's mission actively in the world here and now. On the contrary, in biblical times, those referenced as old or advanced in years, full of days, the elderly, they continued to live out their callings. They engaged in whatever ways God was putting before them in much the same manner as their younger counterparts. Now, of course, with age comes limitations of certain capacities, and so the expression of our Christian lives is definitely going to look different at 70 than it does at 30. And it's going to look different because for many people, they will have retired from a, from a particular job. But there are still some common characteristics that should always thread through our lives if we are sincerely and seriously following Jesus, regardless of our age. And to pick up on some of those characteristics, I want us to look at Psalm 71 this morning. If we turn our Bibles to Psalm 71, this is a psalm that is written by someone in the later years of their life. We infer that from the psalm. There's a little bit of debate about who wrote the psalm. Some people think it was the prophet Jeremiah. No conclusive evidence. But it's a psalm of someone recounting their journey with God, nearing the end of their life. We don't know how uh, close this person was to death, but it's clear from the psalm that they are writing from the perspective of someone who is deep in decades and deep in years and deep in experience of walking with God through those years. I want us to look at verses 15 to 21 specifically because they counsel us on how to grow old gracefully and hopefully, full of grace, full of hope. Verse 15 the psalmist says this, My mouth will tell of your deeds, of your saving acts all day long, though I know not how to relate them all. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteous deed, yours alone. So just pause there for a moment and try and feel, if you can, the urgency and intensity that's coming through in this psalm. The psalmist has a longing to share the greatness of God with other people, but he also admits to God in prayer, I don't, even, I don't know how to package, I, I can't figure out how to do it properly. I can't relate fully how I've experienced you and the good things. I want to proclaim your greatness, but I keep stumbling over the words. I, don't, I, can, I can never find the right illustration, the right metaphor. There's this frustration where the psalmist is like, I got to get this out of me, but it's so hard to encapsulate the greatness of this God that has revealed himself to me after all these years. The psalmist can't keep quiet. Even though he's advanced in years, he hasn't retreated 
to where his faith is just something that he holds in his heart. He wants to get it out there. He wants to proclaim. Why is there an impulse to proclaim? Why can't he shut up God's word in his bones? He can't. Because in verse 17, he says, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Two things the psalmist has been attentive to throughout his life. The first has been God's word. He's been taught by God. He's sought out God. He's been a man of the scriptures, soaking it in, asking questions, wrestling with God. What does this mean? Memorizing verses, talking with other rabbis, challenging other believers, being challenged by them. So God's word, but also he's been attentive to God's workings. He's had his eyes open. He's watched God work in his own life. He's been attentive to how God has worked in the lives of other people. He's kind of been keeping a list and being like, wow, look at how great this God is. In ways big and small, marvelous deeds, some huge, some likely very small, but he's watched to see God at work. He's immersed himself in everything he can about learning God's truth, and he's had a life of observing God working in all kinds of ways. And this has created a, again, this wellspring of joy and excitement in him. So as he approaches the end of his life, he's not kind of just limping across the finish line, as it were. This is someone who has this fuel, this energy. He's running the race to win. He's trying to finish strong. And when I think about that, you know, 15 to 17, I think there's a key here for all of us, regardless of our stage of life, which is we prepare for a quality second half of life by investing in our relationship with God right now. No matter where we are on the journey, we start right now. Start learning to engage God's word in a way that it is meaningful to us. Studying, reading, listening, listening to sermons, reading books. We just take in and we learn and then we apply it. And then we become attentive to how God is working in our lives. We don't just rush through life, hammer through our commitments. We go through our days trying to learn to observe how God is at work in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. And as we do that, we're actually storing up a well of spiritual joy that we will draw from later in our advanced years. Verse 18, Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. I think these verses are pretty challenging for us as a culture, maybe for you personally, because here I see the psalmist rejecting the curse of retirement. The psalmist is rejecting the curse of retirement. And by retirement, I don't just mean retiring from a job, to move into a different calling, I mean retiring from life. Hitting 55, 60, 65, saying I have enough money to be able to retire from responsibility and I'll step back now and just kind of drift into the future. Notice that the psalmist is on mission. If you, can, if you contrast him to Elijah from last week, where Elijah is lying, laying under the broom tree and he's like, I got nothing left, I have no mission, just take my life, God, it's over. This psalmist is asking God to delay his death because he has more to say. And specifically, he has more to say to the next generation. He's living out what we talked about last week, generativity. He's, not, he's, he's setting his sights on not his own comforts, but how do I convey in a meaningful way the greatness of God to the next generation? How do I pass along 
the treasures that God has built up in my life through my experiences, good and bad, walking with God, drifting from God, all of it, how do I pass that on to my children, to my grandchildren, to the children of this community, to the next generation? And he's like, God, I still got a lot to say. I, I'm f- trying to find the words, but I, I got a lot to say. Can you just delay death until I get there? I'll know when I'm spent, but I'm not spent yet. And he is, he is fighting. He's pleading with God to delay death because he still sees his life as meaningful. He still sees his life as a part of God's larger mission. He's seeking to leave a legacy. For the, for the psalmist, it's a legacy of proclaiming God's word and his deeds. For others of us in this room, that might be, that legacy might take a slightly different shape. But he's driven to leave a legacy. I don't want to die without having passed on something of deep significance to this next generation that will point them towards God. And when I think about this psalmist late into their life, penning this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit with this fire in his belly, I think that's such a different picture offered by our culture and the current retirement culture where we're invited to retire from mission, to retire from investment, to retire from sacrifice, You've paid your dues. You deserve it. You've put in your time. This is a season that's for you. What a different picture. The psalmist shows us a completely different trajectory for our advanced years. This isn't about me. This is about giving thanks to God for what he's done in my life and then figuring out how to leverage all of that for the sake of other people. In his book, and it's a short book, and you can get it for free. You can just... uh, Google it, Rethinking Retirement, is written by John Piper. He contrasts the modern conception of retirement with the biblical view of living, living vitally into old age. While popular conceptions of retirement invite us to focus on our needs, our wants, our comforts, our desires, the Bible holds out a much more dynamic and hopeful and satisfying call to those in their 60s and beyond. And that call is this. Seek to finish life to the glory of Christ. Seek to finish life, however much time you have left, wherever you are, from this day forward, seek to finish to the glory of Christ. And then he writes these words. He explains what he means by that. Finishing life to the glory of Christ means finishing life in a way that makes Christ look glorious. It means living and dying in a way that shows Christ to be the all-satisfying treasure that he is. So it would include, for example, not living in ways that would make this world look like it's your treasure. Which means that most of the suggestions that this world offers for us in our retirement are bad ideas. They call us to live in a way that would make this world look like our treasure, and when that happens, Jesus is belittled. And his conclusion is this, finishing life to the glory of Christ means resolutely resisting the typical American dream of retirement. It means being so satisfied with all that God promises to be for us in Christ that we're set free from the cravings that create so much emptiness and uselessness in retirement. And instead, knowing that we have an infinitely satisfying and everlasting inheritance in God just over the horizon of life, we can be zealous in our few remaining years to spend ourselves in the sacrifices of love and not in the accumulation of comforts. I love that line. That's good for any age. 
What does it mean to be a Christian? To spend yourself on the sacrifices of love, not in the accumulation of comforts. Like Paula Darcy said, the 60s and beyond, if we're wise, if we're listening to God, if we're tracking with God, are a time in our lives where we are called once again to save the world, but now out of a deeper well of wisdom and experience. And hopefully that wisdom and experience grounded in walking with God seriously and authentically. And that's why retirement, as our culture holds that out to us, retiring from responsibility, from mission, from life, from responsibility, uh, is, um, I just don't think it's an option for Christians. Now again, we're not talking about retiring from a particular job into a different stage and mode of life. But if that mode of life is essentially moving, we're kind of shifting our spiritual gear into neutral and just kind of seeing where the wind blows. We're no longer pursuing Christ. We're no longer taking advantage of these new margins and saying, God, what do I do with all these extra time? I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to waste these next 10 years, these next five years, this next year maybe. The psalmist is writing out of this place of urgency and mission, but how do you cultivate that in your life, practically speaking? Some of you might be sitting here this morning and saying, I don't have that fire, and I'm in my 20s, I'm in my 40s. And some of you might be saying, I'm in that stage of life, the 60s and beyond, and I'd like to have that fire, but I, I don't feel like it's there. What, what, what role do I have to play in cultivating that, in providing a spark? I think a lot of people struggle with motivating themselves into the retirement years when they don't have a job, when they don't have certain responsibilities that they have to get up for, that they have to be meaningfully engaged in. In the book, Regenerating Generations, the authors, it's kind of written to pastors, but the first third of the book, you could, anyone could totally read it, and it would be really, really helpful, because it's kind of a theology of aging, and it's very, very good. But one of their challenges to pastors or to churches is to create a spies ministry. They call it spies, spies in the promised land, Caleb's. Um, they're kind of riffing off that uh, story in scripture. And they say, the spies ministry, ideally led by those in this age category, would allow those of retirement age to lead and participate in life uh, in a way that is holistic and vital across five areas. And their thesis would be, if there were people in their 60s and beyond engaging in these areas pretty consistently, maybe even daily, a lot of the um, depression and sense of uselessness, sense of futility, isolation, loneliness that often accompanies the first five to ten years post-retirement from a job, that there'd be a huge buttress against that. And not only that, God would be working powerfully if we um, entered into these priorities, whether we were 65 or 85, in whatever capacity we're able to. Those five priorities are this, spiritual, physical, intellectual, emotional, and social growth. They kind of say, hey, it would be great if churches had spies ministries where they were constantly putting in front of people ways to grow spiritually, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and socially. And the idea there is built off of a conviction of Andy Stanley. It would probably be mine too, which is that in general, we don't drift in good directions. We discipline and prioritize ourselves there. So the principles of spiritual growth at 75 are the same as they are at 15, which is train yourself to be godly. And 
you know, when I think about this, uh, this spies template, it might be a good way for some of us, regardless of where we're at, even as an experiment to say three months or between now and, and June, I'm going to write down spies in a notebook every day, or I'm going to set that on my fridge, or I'm going to uh, try and prioritize these things intentionally. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask myself, and, and let's just look at it from the course of uh, on just a day, taking it one day at a time, every day. What's one thing I'm going to do today to intentionally build into my spiritual growth with God? What's one thing that I'm going to do today? Physically, what's one thing that I can do to take a step to, towards being becoming physically stronger? It might be eating better, it might be getting better sleep, it might be going out for a walk, it might be uh, joining a gym. Intellectually, what's one new thing that I can learn? Or maybe a skill that I'm going to start learning even though maybe I've succumbed to this idea that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. But I'm, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to learn something. I'm not just going to watch TV, for example, to be entertained. I'm going to pick a program that's going to be uh, intellectually stimulating. Emotionally, what's one thing that I could do today to invest in relationships around me? Maybe it's write a letter to someone. Maybe it's take time to pray for someone and then follow up with them, encourage them. What's one thing that I could do today that would make a positive impact in even one person's life that I come across today? And then socially, what's something fun that I could do today with other people? and enjoy life, and enjoy the goodness of God, and enjoy the margins this new season get, gives me. And there might be overlap there. It might be I'm going for a walk with a friend. I really enjoy that. It might be playing a card game. It could be, you know, you fill in the blank, going for a boat ride. But when I think about that template, I thought, you know, if someone was just trying every day to hit those markers, every day, one thing, I think you could expect to have a pretty vibrant journey in the last quarter or third of your life. There are going to be limitations, obviously, at certain points of these, but learning to adapt to those limitations and seeking to be meaningfully involved in these areas would make a world of difference, especially if these were done with the ends in mind of loving God and loving your neighbor. Not just a kind of a make-work project to keep yourself busy, but to say, God, I want to grow spiritually, physically, intellectually, emotionally, and socially so that I'm better able to love you and to love the people you've put around me. Imagine if every day you set a little goal in each of those areas, one thing you're going to do, and then you prayed at the start of the day, God, this is how I intend to pursue you today and honor you. Use me for your glory. I have a hard time, to be honest with you, I have a hard time imagining if someone's doing that intentionally, they would get to the end of the week and be like, nothing happened, this is lame. I'm bored. I think God would surprise you when you shift gears out of neutral to drive. Even if it's only 10 kilometers an hour. Verse 19, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God, though you've made me see many troubles, sorry, though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort me once more. There's a whole sermon series here. 
what I want you to notice is that the psalmist, as he's moving towards death, has an increasingly clear picture and conviction of the resurrection life that God offers on that other side. He's glorying in the anticipation of resurrection, or we, we might say new creation, heaven, but more than heaven, and I'll explain that in a moment. See, when you age as a Christian, what you're actually doing is you are... Um, aging for a Christian is a pilgrimage of hope. You are moving towards the city of God. If you've placed your trust in Christ, if you've received his forgiveness, if you've been regenerated by his spirit, you are assured of eternal life. And there are ways in which that eternal life has started now. God's spirit is within you. You've been sealed as part of the family of God, and you are assured of salvation. But the full experience of that eternal life you will not take hold of until first stage, you die and then are welcomed into the presence of Christ, you're at home with the Lord and then next stage, when Christ's return, Revelation 21 new heavens and new earth the dead in Christ will rise to eternal life, kind of capital E-L, eternal life resurrected bodies, not disembodied souls in a dim other dimensionality of heaven but right physical physical creation but renewed and released from the curse of sin the vision for that comes from Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4 John says then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And what that means is, whether you're 20 or 50, or 80, or 98, if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, the best things are yet to come. Romans 8.18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, and he's speaking about his own sufferings, and if you read the epistles, he's very honest about his sufferings, and they're not minor ones. This isn't, I stub my toe, and sometimes my plans didn't quite work out. We're talking about shipwrecks and almost losing your life and beatings and imprisonments, all for the sake of making Jesus known. He says, I consider that our present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us, that will be revealed in us. He's speaking to the resurrection. On that day, those who have walked through the darkest valley of the shadow of death, maybe even in their later years, had to face um, limitations of their capacity because of frailty, because of disease, because of illness. But in and through those spaces of suffering, still sought whatever their capacity was, however meager it was, to say, how do I glorify God through my suffering? How do I point people towards Jesus during this time that's hard for me? On that resurrection day, we will look back and say, oh, that was, that was nothing. I'd, I'd do it again in a second. No eyes seen... No ears heard, no mind is conceived, Paul wrote, the wonders that God has prepared for those who love him. You think about 
how great heaven, I used, to do this, I used to do this as a teenager. I read that verse, I was like, so wait, wait, you're telling me if I can try and imagine heaven, how amazing that would be, stretch the limits of my imagination, and get to that place where it's like, wow, that would be amazing. I could actually imagine living forever in that kind of reality and never getting bored. That is amazing. And the Bible says, uh, your imagination, it's too stunted. It still can't get there. You're, you're still, you're grabbing second best. That is an amazing promise. And when you think and when you know that promise, and as you age, um, you should be reflecting on that promise, the assurance of eternal life and what eternity with God's going to look like, that vision of new heavens and new earth, that will begin to act as a kind of vaccine. This is why it's important to do it earlier in your life. It will act as a kind of vaccine against the disease of affluenza. I want more and more and more, which can then get spun out into retirement as, oh, now life's about me. It will act as a vaccine against that because if that vision is true, all of the things that I might want to clamor for and experience here in life, I'm going to get it then. So if God blesses me with it now, that's totally fine, but I don't live with any anxiety about not having this or not experiencing this part of the world or not having, well, do this. I have all of eternity and a new heavens and new earth to experience that. So what I can do now is release myself from FOMO, fear of missing out. What if I don't have this experience and this and travel here and do this and that? And I can say, that'll all come. Now what I need to do is be faithful to what God has called me to do. It's tremendously freeing. I want to close this series with a call to those in their 60s and beyond, but also to all of us. And it comes out of a single line of text in the book of Genesis that for me holds all of this together in a really powerful way. It's a single line of text that conveys in a really beautiful way how God intends to use those who are advanced in years for great kingdom purposes. It's a single line that speaks to vision and hope and faith and love. It it speaks to vital living well into the 60s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. And it's a single line of text that speaks to a resolve to leave a legacy of God-honoring lasting value. And that text is Genesis 21, verse 33. Genesis 21, verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the eternal God. This verse occurs very late in Abraham's life. He's over 100 years old. He is way past the time of life when most of us would assume anything of great value could be accomplished by someone who is over 100. And yet we read that Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba. I want to show you a picture of a tamarisk tree. They're pretty tall and beautiful. Like the acacia, the tamarisk is a large tree, but unlike the former, it doesn't grow on its own in the desert. It needs a certain level of minor cultivation in order to survive its first few months. So Abraham, by planting this tree, is saying, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do the work of seeing this thing flourish. This isn't just a stick it in the ground and then I go off and do my life. I'm going to give this attention. Abraham intends to work towards the cultivation of this tamarisk tree. Why? Well, the leaves of the tree absorb what little moisture is in the air in the morning, and then they give off the faintest glimmer 
of humidity, uh, sorry, humidity in its shade. And so, if you are being scorched under the noonday sun in the Middle East, if you find a tamarisk tree, its shade will be about 10 to 15 degrees cooler than the shade of other trees because of that moisture on, on the needles of the tree. But that's not the primary reason why Abraham plants the tamarisk tree. This cultivated tree takes approximately three generations to grow to full size. And so it stands to reason, and, and Jewish rabbis, when they're commenting on this verse, they'll make sure that we understand that no man plants a tamarisk tree for himself. You don't even plant the tamarisk tree for your children. You're planting a tamarisk tree for your grandchildren for like what generations ahead. And the rabbis would say, planting a tamarisk tree is this amazing act of faith. And it's an amazing act of love because you will never sit in its shade. But you have a vision for your children and their children and your community down the line. And what you're saying by planting a tamarisk tree is God my dying breath, I'm going to proclaim your goodness to the next generation. I'm going to do what I can to provide shade and mercy to those who come after me. In this single act, Abraham shows us what lies at the heart of a beautiful and Christ-exalting second half of life. Faith, hope, love, with a view to serve God's purposes for generations to come. The spiritual journey of the 60s and beyond is not one where we're invited or called to focus on ourselves, as tempting and as easy as that might become. We're not called during this stage of life to seek our immediate gratification. We're called to be forward-thinking, our task is to care for those entrusted to us, yes, but also to prepare the way for future generations who aren't even born yet. In the second half of life, the rabbis would ask us to consider how many tamarisk trees are you planting? How many tamarisk trees are you planting? You want to leave a legacy? Plant a tamarisk tree. What does that look like? That's your journey. Begin praying about it. Yourself, as a couple, as a family, with your friends. What would it look like for us to plant the tamarisk tree? Whose shade we will never sit in, but someone 80 years from now will be blessed. I love this story because it shows us that God can use us, and God will use us at any age. There is no age limit to the way he works. The time is right and the need is great to continue God, serving God by honoring and encouraging and equipping God's people to love and serve the body of Christ in the communities around us. And this applies to people of all ages, but especially those whom God has gifted with longevity. Let's pray. God, as we close out this series, we've walked through decades and stages of life that present all kinds of challenges, but also opportunities 
to encounter you and to respond to you in faith in the midst of those challenges. And I pray that it has been eye-opening for each of us individually. It's grown our heart and appreciation for the ways that you work in our lives. We've been able to trace your hand in our lives, regardless of what age and stage of life we find ourselves now. I pray that it's increased our appreciation and love for those outside of our immediate kind of demographic context, out of our stage of life where the things that we face, we can kind of think, oh, this is the most important thing. This is what everyone's dealing with. God, we do use this series to grow us up in our faith, to deepen our love for one another. And God, at every stage, from childhood to teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, would you put this holy discontent that the psalmist speaks to in our hearts? Would you put a fire in our bellies so that at every stage of life we would continue to struggle forward in faith and say, God, I want what is next. I want to obey you. I want to run this race. And may we as a community even be inspired over the next few years to think, what can we do as a community to plant a tamarisk tree here in Nelson? To give shade to generations of covenanters that will come after us? but also generations of Nelsonites. Empower us and inspire us and sanctify our imaginations to this end, God. We commend ourselves to your care. We rely on your grace. And we lift up your name and glory and the promise of new creation. In Jesus' name.